for October 10th, 2022. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 745. Are you guys familiar with the Monroe Doctrine? Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are watching uh, watching something and uh, talking about it together. Sometimes we talk about what we admired. Sometimes we talk about what uh, we found bemusing. Sometimes we just scratch our heads, look around the virtual uh, the the conference call and say, WT... Fun times, my friend. What the fun times is going on <laughs> with this uh, with this particular thing? But um, but gang, we're going to delve into a strange and exotic culture today. A, a, a place that y- you might have heard of, uh, but that you know, I just don't think that uh, I don't think that anyone is ready for the true, the true strangeness and the true cultural difference uh, that we are going to talk about today. That's right. We're going to talk about the British. <laughs> now, how strange, how man? exotic, how bizarre. Is it a real place? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not even it's not even a real place. <laughs> it's not even a real place uh i'm matt rather i'm joined by pete fenzel hello pete hello matt and mark lee hey mark god save the king (laughs) now god save him from oh so many perilous things which we'll discuss if we know cr3 throw it up (laughs) uh <laughs> is that do we throw three <laughs> fingers in the air now like a like a w or something like that yes. you know like the west side w and that's the that's the three for for chucky trey um so chucky uh trey. that's what we got to call it from now on chucky trey <laughs> chucky that's trey um if we uh if we know one thing about the british they are a uh, baked goods loving people <laughs> And they uh, they chronicle this in their their many television shows. In fact, all British television is about baked goods or yes. or about you know. And uh, name a British show uh, that you think is not about baked goods, and it will actually be uh, about baked goods. Uh, the the British Office about baked goods, about the the you know pastries in in the uh, in the break room. Uh, Blackadder, baked goods. <laughs> Faulty <Why do> you- <laughs> baked goods. That's Why all. Do you they- think Doctor Who is always fighting those ovens all the time? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's, Exterma you know. bake. Exterma bake. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so uh, listen. Here's what occasioned this conversation: the Great British Bake Off, or as I, I think Bake Off is trademarked in the United States. So on Netflix, when it stra- streams in the U.S., it's called the Great British Baking Show. Uh, aired uh mexican week um you know uh the uh this week i i am almost at a loss for words that it is a thing that happened <laughs> on on this competition reality show that is a you know vote one person off one contestant off every uh every week where amateur bakers uh compete in a series of challenges you know to be crowned the the British, the best British baker, which is like their God because they are a baked goods loving people. Um, they, they, uh, have theme weeks. You know, they have a week devoted to bread or a week devoted to cookies, which they call 
biscuits. And they have a, uh, you know, uh, a week devoted to different, maybe national cuisines. And this week they had, uh, Mexican week. So, um, you know, a cold open, uh, Noel Fielding from the Mighty Boosh and, um, uh, Matt Lucas, who I know less about, are standing in the field, you know, in the uh, beautiful uh, countryside location where they where they shoot this show, uh, wearing colorful, like dayglow colored serapes, uh, sombreros, yep. and like mm-hmm. holding holding maracas in their mm-hmm. hands to These are things that happen yep. to introduce Mexican Week. Uh, and they made a joke uh, about how they couldn't make jokes about Mexicans, not even Juan. Don't, don't, don't at me. <laughs> I'm quoting from the television show. And okay, uh, okay, first things off, okay? Like, the way they frame this is like, we can't make Mexican jokes. Like, we can't say racist stuff, like, you know, make ethnic stereotypes about, about Mexicans, which they are doing straight off the bat because we'll get in trouble. But then they turn around and make a pun based on Spanish and English, which is not a Mexican joke per se. Right. Oh, that's it's, inter- name, it's interesting. Yeah, least. it is a Hispanic joke, not a uh, not a Mexican one, I suppose. There you go. Yes. Are you uh, guys familiar with the Monroe Doctrine? Because <laughs> <laughs> it explains a lot of what happened. <laughs> For those who don't know, the Monroe Doctrine is one of the oldest and most ironclad policies of American foreign uh, intervention political, diplomatic, and military grand strategy, which is very specifically to not let British bakers go to Mexico. (laughs) I like to not let the British at all anywhere near Mexico. (laughs) I thought the the Monroe Doctrine... The French took Mexico at one point, but no, the British have never been allowed to colonize Mexico uh, because of the Monroe Doctrine. And as such, none of these people know anything about Mexican Mexico, and there's like almost no Mexicans who live in the United Kingdom. It is not at all like the U.S., oh, where it is approximate yes, yes. culture. And, and, yes, yes, an important subclause of the Monroe Doctrine is that it allows three gringos like ourselves <laughs> to talk about Mexican food, at least with some level of superiority over the British, yes. which is, let's be honest, it's not that hard to do. Be, uh, walk softly and stir with a big stick, right? Is that what it is? <laughs> you know, Mexico... Stir that, you know, by... that pico de gallo. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so there, there are two large problems that 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 emerge right and they're they're related but distinct problems one is that the kind of the entertainment section is relying on a lot of like sombrero related humor you know (laughs) a lot of like a lot of maraca uh maraca related jokes which you know is uh it, even if it is not motivated by any kind of animus, it comes off at least to uh, to an American eye as as cringe. The uh, as the I kids do say. like Donald Duck seventy years ago. <laughs> like, <laughs> Donald Duck seventy years ago was great. All modern comedy should be indistinguishable from it. <laughs> <laughs> they they got they missed the memo by the way. Where a a, a um. A certain university that is near and dear to our hearts, not less than about 10 years ago, a huge campus ruckus went over uh, regarding sombreros and holiday and Halloween costumes. Oh, my yeah, God. Remember it, that? It yep. happens. It, it it happens like the swallows returning home to Capistrano. I feel like it happens on a dispiritingly regular cadence where, you know, some some student organization or other has to like, you know, uh, protest a frat Cinco de Mayo party or something, something like that, because they just go, they go a little bit far with, uh, 
uh, with some of the iconography. But anyway, that's that's one problem. The other problem, related but distinct, is that everyone on the show is entirely ignorant of Mexican <laughs> cooking. They don't know anything about uh, about Mexican cooking, and what they know, they mispronounce. So, you know, that's that it, it, it struck, I don't know, it struck, uh, struck me anyway as, uh, as a kind of interesting, um, thing that, that we could talk about. Now, I, I just like to, to make a couple, a couple of points. One, Mexico by population is twice the size of the United Kingdom. <laughs> it is a much, much, you know, on the order of 120 million versus on the order of 60 million, right? So it is a much, much bigger, uh, much bigger place. Um, the other thing is that like Mexico is a, is a, uh, like kind of a food wonderland. Um, and is, you know, in the, it, it, it I guess it it reminds me of like uh, other big countries that have really specific regional cuisines. China is one that comes to mind, right? That's that's just like a large place, and so like each province or state or you know uh, whatever administrative designation they have, like each one kind of has its own traditions, has its own flavors, has its own like unique dishes, and um, and Mexico is is definitely like that and you need to have a uh you need to live in a place where there's a lot of a lot of mexican immigration and like so that like distinct states can have like distinct uh identities or different restaurants or or something like that i happen to live near like three pretty damn good Oaxacan restaurants which is a totally you know tastes tastes completely different from from food that you might you know from food from other other parts of the the uh country let alone the americanized versions that have arisen here like Tex-Mex or like you know um Chevy's (laughs) (laughs) right the the sort of the chilizization the Applebee'sization of uh of Mexican food which is another phenomenon that 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 has happened in the in the United States but their total i mean their total ignorance of of Mexican food just just struck me as like it's such a big part of my life of my culinary experience living where i live Pete why are they not the same as me <laughs> isn't that a great question why aren't they they should be they speak english most of them you know, tan about as well as you do, right? Like they're very, very, very fair skinned bunch on the British Bake Off for the most part. I mean, yep. I guess it's what, like 60, 40, 70, 30, something like that. Um, but yeah, but no, I, I, when we were commenting on this, when we were talking about this before we got started, I did pose a question to everybody, which is based on order of magnitude, like by an order of magnitude, how many Mexican people do you think live in the United Kingdom? And and Matt, you got it right on the first guess. I know. Was, yeah, I got it. I, yeah, yeah I, nailed, I nailed it. I was proud of myself. Single digit yeah. thousands was my yes, guess. Yes, exactly. Which is like if you, which would be equivalent proportionally to what? Like, uh, it's about. It's a little bit under ten thousand people according to last census. It might be over that by now. Maybe so it, it would is, be. It would be the equivalent of like fifty thousand people. So a small yeah, s- in yeah. the United in States. In the U.S. Yeah. 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 Uh, so like which Zoroastrians. I'm ju- I'm ju- yeah. Exactly. Right? Yeah. 
What are their 50? That's a, that, that, now there's a great research question. What are their 50,000 of in the United States just to get a, you know, order of magnitude yeah. type of comparison? State legislators. <laughs> <laughs> also bad at cooking Mexican food, yeah. oddly enough. Yes. So like, if you've never met a state legislator, you're about on par with these people trying to make tacos on the Great British Bake Off. So, so you're saying that there isn't a, there isn't a, I mean, to them, like Mexico is sort of a, a, a magical fairyland and they don't, uh, they don't really know much. It, they can be excused for not necessarily knowing all that much about it because they're not likely to have met, uh, people from there, you know, any more than I know the difference between, I don't know what, a lot of former Soviet republics, right? I mean, I would, I would just say that. In the United States, we have this very comfortable and familiar relationship between our sort of Anglo culture and our Spanish speaking culture that involves food and it involves kind of class coded food and sort of street food and class coded street food and an assumption that there's something intrinsic about these relationships that I think borders on uh, what I might say is borders on the aspirationally scientific Mm. Right. Like the white people are like this, the Mexican, you know, the, the Latinos and the Latinx people are like this and the black people are like this. And this is all based on all these things that very specifically happened. And they're all kind of endemic to, to society. It oh, is, my God, Pete, um, I saw that comedy special. It was great. I love- <laughs> <laughs> but it's just it's just interesting to consider that those particular sorts of roles in different places are not played by the same people. Right. And there's this sort of I think. Part of the the racecraft, as it were, of constructing this notion of these different groups of people that have these different essential roles in our sort of problematized economic and social organization, you know, de facto that we have around here. Part of sort of assuming that it exists is kind of assuming that it is bigger than it is uh, by at the same time leaning in toward the idea that other people might experience it. too. Like we would expect uh, other 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 English speaking white people to have similar relationship with tacos that we do. And, you know, the street food scene in London is very different from the street food scene in Los Angeles. Right. And like to the extent that Americans avoid Spanish speaking things, I think it is a something of a self-conscious effort a lot of the time because it is so pervasive uh, in at least certain parts of the country. Um, whereas I think I mean, also, another part of it is the United States is like the number one destination for immigrants in the world by like a pretty big margin. And so we don't really know what it's like to live in like really I mean, not us because we live in big cities, right, to live in like truly insular places. And I'm not saying that the UK is like that per se, but some of the towns where those people are from probably are. And some of the towns in the United States are like that, too. A lot of them. Right. But just not the ones not the ones we're from. Yeah, no, I'm from I'm from one of those towns. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, that's true. So as someone yeah. from Alabama, how did you feel about the Mexican episode of Great British Bake Off? Probably a different perspective than I did. As a as a person from Alabama. <laughs> as an Alabama American. As an authority on Mexican food. Yeah. No. Like um, well, there'll just... be a food truck and a taco truck in every corner and thinking about in horror as opposed <laughs> yeah. to like, oh nice. Well, I mean, I'll throw something out here, right? The first time I ever had Indian food was uh, at the age of eighteen. When I came to New Haven, Connecticut for college with with all you fine folks. Um, uh, So I can I can certainly relate to like, you know, um, much more provincial food culture. Right. I mean, gosh, look at us. We're just like just talking down our noses at these British. It's so it's it's so (laughs) delightful, is it not? Um, I don't know. Like I, I have a little bit. I think I have a little bit more sympathy for the people on this show 
um, than 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 others might. I mean, like, sure, they're getting roasted, and like by and large, that is deserved. Um, but they they have no frame of reference for it, right? And well, another thing as well, and this is this is certainly a little bit of a political thing, but like you know, like ownership of food and who gets to make it and who gets to talk about it is a tricky thing, right? I mean, that's why I only have jokingly put out before, like, you know, we're three gringos talking about Mexican food here, like we know something. Matt, to be fair, is from Los Angeles, um, grew up in Los Angeles, which is practically Mexico, so I'm told. Um, so he's he has a bit more of a, a leg to stand on uh, than others. But like, you know, I, I, like, I, I, I don't want us to like to come off and sound like, you know, Food is this thing that needs to be policed, right? You know, like you can make a bad taco, right? As they say on the show. Um, uh, and like, sure, like, you know, iterate on it. Great. Like, um, you know, the cringy jokes, like, no, 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 no. O- over the line um, for sure. But like, you know, uh, you know, the food doesn't have to be one thing to everyone all over the world. I just I want to at least like give like a little bit of grace um, to these so fine folks. Like, is it fair to say that there were three different perspectives on this other than just looking on it in horror uh there were three <laughs> different which is what prue was doing like i don't know what we're doing here whatever is <laughs> uh prue of course being one of the two judges uh but there were the corny jokes which were the dumbest worst part and you could sort of tell that at least the bald guy wasn't fully into it but uh but he sells it because that's his job right the corny jokes about with serapes and sombreros and maracas and, stuff. and just a brief aside like is that par for the course for a great british breaking show or is these like bad for bad for the jokes even are always the terrible. The jokes okay. are always terrible. Right. Although okay. these two guys haven't always been the jokesters. So back when it wasn't them, the jokes were not as bad. Um, fair. Is that fair to say, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I guess like um, you know, no- Noel Fielding comes from a, a like surrealist comedy duo <laughs> that was, yeah. yes. you know, uh, that uh, it's. Uh, uh, so he's I he has a like a history as an avant-garde comedian so I'm not I'm not sure that his um uh, I'm not sure that his style isn't you know somehow a snake eating its own tail type of sincerity and uh uh weird ironic performance of sincerity but um yeah it's a, a, a the jokes are are very corny and of the of the dad variety right they're not never funny it's just that they're they're very broad and uh and the little banter stuff is the funny stuff anyway um the the interstitial material is not so great um, but it's not, you know, whatever. It's fine. It's it's not always offensive. It's not always. And again, by the way, that Donald Duck movie I was talking about, uh, 80 years old, not 70 years old. <laughs> so Three Caballeros is way back at the rear view at this point. But yes. So there's the comedians who are doing what they have to do or whatever. And it's it's very familiarly gauche and offensive and and all that nonsense. Then there's the bakers who are just being told to do something they just don't know how to do. Which is and, like make guacamole is more or less their instructions. Yes, and they guacamole show. and they have no freaking idea there's, how to make guacamole. There's like guacamole. layers to it, right? It's like, this is a baking show. Why do I have to make guacamole on a baking show? Also, what's guacamole? <laughs> I've like, never <laughs> had it. I don't know what it is. Is it like shawarma? Because I have shawarma all the time. <laughs> like, um, uh, is it is it a kind of curry? That kind of thing, right? But um, but yeah, you're and, and I want to get into a little bit more about that, about um, the sort of role of the bakers. Uh, and then there's Paul Hollywood, the one judge who seems like this was his idea. Oh, yeah. This is easily like the most interesting part of this. Yeah. Who like back in the day, maybe 10 years ago or so, had a high profile affair with a Mexican-American celebrity chef 
and who had had said on the show, well, I just traveled to Mexico and this is how it is <laughs> like um, who has something. He has some sort of relationship with Mexico that seems like it could itself be its own episode of television. Uh, like what? Because Paul Hollywood does a bunch of travel shows and, and sort of car driving shows and sort of fas- fancies himself the kind of globe trotting uh, celebrity TV personality you know, probably on the lines of like an Anthony Bourdain or at least a Jeremy Clarkson. Anyway. And yet, and yet yeah. the words Pico de Calo <laughs> come from this man's mouth. Exactly. And so like, and, okay. Okay. And that's another sidebar here. Like, you know, we're poo poo. This is again, us like just had taken this opportunity to take a piss on the British and, and like they're the funny way that they say stuff. Um, that said though, Pete, I think you're saying like, you know, uh, he was like projecting way more authority on Mexican yes. food that he had like, you know, um, uh, than he had really any right. Well, especially Mexican baked goods, because so. So, OK, really, the round that was really bad was the taco round because it was they had no business being told to make tacos. It's not baking. They maybe had business being told to make tortillas. That would have been interesting if they just said, like, make 10 tortillas and and like or even if it was just quesadillas. But the fact that it was like you have to cook steak on, a, on an electric hot plate and you have to like mince onions and all this other stuff. It it seemed out of character for the show. It didn't make sense. Uh, and that's where most of the mispronunciation and the comical uh, failures came from. It was um, weird. It 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 does seem odd that someone doesn't have context, doesn't have the cultural context for a taco. But uh, you know, the, which is how we're going to pronounce it because that's yes. that's how they say it. Uh, yep. d- d- brief aside, though, like the the British have a long history of anglicizing uh, foreign names, right? Like, and and uh, this is not the worst one that that they uh, that they do not by a yep. not by a long shot. Um, so, yeah. I, and by worst, I mean like farthest from, uh, you know, farthest from recognizably coinciding with, uh, with a foreign word or name. So the, uh, you know, uh, they, they make the tacos. Yeah. I thought it was a weird, I thought it was a weird choice. Um, that like a, <laughs> what they were, it was wrong. They, they, they were making tacos from the Chevy, the Chevy's, uh, strain, the state of Chevy's, um, <laughs> You know, uh, they were engaged in the Chevy chase. Yeah, exactly. The, the, you know, not, um, not a street taco, which is a, you know, a corn tortilla folded around a couple bites, like two, three bites of meat with, you know, optionally some, some sauce on it or maybe a little like onion sprinkled on it or, or whatever. No, they were, they were like the big sort of overstuffed, you know, uh, uh, like American style, um, type of thing but that you know but that okay that's fine what what it is is that they're making like a savory dish they're not it's not baking right like they're making a savory dish uh that is completely that is cooked almost completely on a stove on a hot plate there's no use of the oven right you like well i guess they had masa already but like you cook corn you put you put um cow you know uh uh lime uh in the corn to nixtamalize the the corn you like you grind by hand the, the on a, a volcanic um you know a volcanic sort of uh uh slate the uh the corn into the the masa you shape it you 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 know press it into tortilla shape you cook it on you cook it on a um on a a hot uh 
traditionally, I think like a komal, a, a, like a terracotta, heated terracotta thing. Um, at no point, at no point in anything I just described, was there anything that I would call baking in that 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 whole uh that whole sequence and then like you make refried beans you make like marinated steak or whatever other protein you're gonna put uh into it you like you make a little you make a little sauce or you make a like a a a pico de gallo um as they as they say um right that that like uh and I, i think pico means small doesn't pico mean small in uh in other languages um uh yeah like pica oh right but that's, uh, you know, there, there's no baking. So it was a weird, it was a weird, it was a weird thing. Like, I, I guess making a flatbread is, is baking, but it's, it's done on a hot plate and not on a, uh, not in an oven or something like almost every other dish that they make on this show. Yeah, exactly. And also because of the technical challenge, the way the technical challenges work is it's assumed that you know how to make it. Almost all of the technical challenge pieces are things that these people are supposed to be familiar with. And therefore, they go very minimal on the instructions, usually, on what it is. And it's a test of your sort of accumulated baker knowledge. Like, do you know how to make a Victoria sandwich? That's the one that always sticks out in my memory. I don't know what that is, but they should. And they should know, not only should they know how to make it, they should know the difference between a good one and a bad one. And they should be able to foresee some of the common issues that would come up in making a Victoria sandwich, which is not a sandwich, much to my chagrin. Because uh, it sounded delicious, but it's a cake, right? It's still delicious. But the point is that uh, that they didn't know how to make it. There were no directions. There's no impetus in the show to teach them how to do it. And it's also absurd because they don't have the equipment uh, to do it. And they're not doing, as you said, any of the actual interesting parts that would involve alternative modes of bread making. It's like, okay, you're making bread. Not everyone in the world makes bread with an oven. Here's a different way to make bread. That's interesting on the Great British Bake Off. This whole thing was nonsense. But but even then, if you step past that, the, the rounds that I'm really interested in are the first round and the third round, which were not the ones that were really offensive, but were the ones that were almost bi- – there were bigger train wrecks, I think, in terms of the cooking. Because in the first round, they were charged with making any of a wide array of Mexican pastries, right? Like, like, like as in like they were told to – it's as if they were being told to make patisserie. Yeah, it's like, right, yeah. Hey, hey, Pete, can you whip up some patisserie? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, how about you? Your challenge is to make 12 cookies. Like, what kind of cookies? What do you mean? Right? Um, All right, ready, ready, go. Yeah, exactly. And and so most of the people make conchas, right? Which I'm trying to pronounce correctly. I have no idea. I've never had it. Right. But it's like, okay, well, what if they had all just been told to make conchas and say it explained at the beginning what a concha is? (laughs) Right. Like and that way we would have a sort of actual test to see if they could do the thing rather than this. Like, well, can you go to Wikipedia and look up some pastry that's in a subset of this like larger group of Mexican pastries? And they kept saying, well, there's thousands of varieties. And it's like, well, none of they're not going to show up. (laughs) You're not going to see thousands of varieties on this show because none of them know how to do it. And so there was a real problem of, of, of taking this foreign cuisine and not narrowing it down enough to the point where the bakers had something to do and execute on, where the audience would know whether they were being successful or not. It right. was just spread all over the place. They didn't have um, – right. As, so as, as competition reality television and also as like a food show generically, it sort of fails in both of those 
uh, in both the, both of those things because it was there was no clear success criteria, right? Like there was no clear winning. Um, yes. that's, that's, that's one thing. And then the other thing is that the, the kind of the, normally the thing that you do in a, um, like the, the thing that top chef does, like, is that there's a guest chef, you know, that there's, yes. th- there's someone that's who co- a smart thing to do, yes. right. Who comes in from outside and it's like, you know, all right, you know, this week is we're doing something that we're not, we're not familiar with. Here's someone to provide context or here's someone to like, you know, let us, let us know. But it is, I mean, it is the, the, you know, the, the, what the sort of, uh, there is something, I don't know. It should have been, I, I, you know, who should have written a poem about this uh, show? Pete Rudyard Kipling should have written, <laughs> should have written a poem about this show. You're a you know, better man I, mean? than I am taco din. <laughs> <laughs> you're a, yours. Yours is the oven and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a baker, my son. Um, that the no, no tacos in Rudyard Kipling. I bet zero. I bet. I, I wonder if that's true. Because like, he never, I mean, he was born in India, right? So he didn't, he was very far from things. Well, I mean, like, I, I, every, every culture, I think one of the things that, that one of the things that, that drives my small c conservatism is the knowledge that every culture has, uh, invented a way to wrap a piece of bread around a meat yes, <laughs> and, yes, exactly. you know, and, and, yep. uh, put it in, put it in your mouth. And I feel like all humankind, uh, is my, my, my sibling, is my family, you know, uh, because, because, uh, we put we put the meat on the bread. We uh, we wrap it up, whether it be you know, um, whatever Rudyard Kipling so, was familiar with, or or a taco. Have you so, Matt, would you say that we're would you say that we're all one happy international um, undistinguishable uh, television audience in that we're, regard? Then? We're all we're all so, so that Juan, you can make we're a show. One happy indistinguishable. Yeah, there you go. Oh. Hey, yo. no bueno, Matt. Don't, no bueno. Don't don't um, at me. <laughs> Um, because, uh, one of the things we talked about earlier was that like, um, looking at this piece of television and kind of scratching your heads, it's like, well, like, is this for a British audience? Would this play differently if it were, you know, purely a local phenomenon over there, um, versus something that Netflix is like pushing very hard, um, presumably across this entire global audience, but really specifically for us, uh, the American audience, like, yeah, what's going on with that? I mean, I think, that's, I think that's really interesting. Like I, 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 this, this is the hot take. This is, this is the thing that might get me angry email, but I, I like, I think that, uh, it, it would be badly offensive. Like it would be offensive to the point where it needed to be protested if it had been made in the United States, but it wasn't right. It wasn't, it was made by different people in a, in a different, in a different context. And I, you know, to a certain extent, right. I, I think the British are available as, um, sort of easy projection objects for us, for the, you know, for the, like the, the, whatever the, like, uh, European imperialist, like colonial, you know, whatever we recognize in, in, in our culture as being, you know, colonial or hegemonic or, or, you know, eager to, or, or sort of white supremacist, right? Eager to like denigrate other people. And, and it's easy, it's easy to sort of think of that, um, think of the British as being like, 
as being an extension of that, uh, with their, you know, with their arch, uh, Alan Rickman accents, you know, and they're like, uh, they're, they're, um, I don't know, strange ways of entry of, of, uh, uh, inserting the letter U in, into the spelling of words. But, you know, of course, the, the British are not, uh, a, a whipping boy for our, our own racial failures as American society. <laughs> they are British, uh, which is, a uh, a different thing and like it it i i wonder right i wonder how it plays over there and if it's right if it like because the the dynamics what Pete was talking t- talking about the di- the dynamics are are so different there than than what they are v- over here and this is like this is a weird this is an a, a really interesting thing like there are two models when you have when you have um kind of you know juggernaut ip and want to want to exploit it in different national markets around the world. One is that one is um kind of the Netflix model, which is produce once, run everywhere. That's not that's not strictly speaking true. Um, but uh like Squid Game, right? Like was Squid Game everywhere. They didn't make like Australian Squid Game and like uh you know Nigerian Squid Game and and Indian Squid Game and you know I don't know Brazilian Squid Game and then American Squid Game. No, they they just there was one Squid Game and it played all over uh it played all over the world um now there are different bake offs right like there are different kind of regional versions of this show it just so happens that in the united states we get the great british bake off uh great british baking show on uh on netflix so so we are to a certain extent like looking in at someone else's national conversation right and it's the the um so so what we see is a, is a little hard to understand and i think you can be forgiven a little bit for interpreting it um in in the light of your own experience but it you know hopefully we like reach beyond you know we we august uh food critics of the overthinking of podcast can sort of reach beyond that and 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 see something else but like you know when pop idol became such a smash in the uk first i think like it it became american idol uh it became like australian idol it became you know they did they did different regional versions um of this competition. I wonder if, I, I wonder if in that case, because of the, the availability of the singers to like tour after the, you know, a tour in a national market after the, the uh, show wraps up a season. Um, the, the, and then you can think of like more and more and more uh, versions of, of that um, where the, uh, where the, um, like uh you know where the where the ip is kind of adapted um we tried it this year uh, in the united states to to mixed results with the american song contest which was sort of modeled on uh modeled on eurovision the eurovision song contest which is i don't know it's it's weird i guess like i i guess the united states is all in as big a market as the European Broadcasting Union, but it does it does seem weird because there are more. I don't know. It was it it was an imperfect uh, it was an imperfect translation. But um, I I was thinking of a of a Netflix show that that was largely about police interrogations uh, that they shot 
in four different languages with four, you know, four different sets of actors uh, on the same set. And I, you know, I think the the scripts were adapted a little bit for each different national market. But the idea was that they were going to like kind of build the set once and and market the show once. It was called like criminal or interrogation or uh or something like uh, something like that so there is this like there is there is a weird thing now in which like uh, a, a further extension of of you know how we talk about regional accents in the United States being kind of leveled speech being sort of leveled uh, not completely not not with perfect efficiency but uh, you know to to some extent uh because we're all watching the same television shows now we're all consuming the same media and hearing the same same voices in our heads um and, uh, you know, to a certain extent, this seems like something that's going to start happening on a global stage as the, you know, the ability to beam things into every household on earth, to stream things into every household on earth, rather, becomes, uh, uh, you know, becomes possible. And, uh, you know, you, you want to sort of exploit IP in different national markets. So, you my, know, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, my favorite example of this is, uh, I don't know if we ever actually talked about it on an episode uh, Ultimate Beastmaster. Did you guys ever watch Ultimate Beastmaster? Uh, no, I watched Penultimate Beastmaster. It's the one before, right? Yeah. yeah. This is not. It's not related to the sci-fi fantasy films of the same name. It's a Sylvester Stallone produced. I don't want to say ripoff, but let's say um, exactly the same as uh, Ninja Warrior. It's like a, it's an obstacle course race that's extremely similar to Ninja Warrior, mm. but the gist other except that the the obstacle course is roughly shaped like a dinosaur <laughs> so like the, it's called the beast and every part of it is referred to euphemistically as like the blood of the beast the teeth of the beast and all that nonsense mm-hmm. but the thing that makes this show actually interesting is that there are there were something like six different commentator booths that were all visible and part of the show that were doing live co- there were six different pairs of people doing live commentary on the show in six different language while it was happening languages while it was happening and interacting with each other and the athletes in the show were on teams associated with each of the countries so what was being done is they were shooting in real time effectively six different shows each which focused on the home country as the protagonist of this thing to a greater or lesser degree than, you know, than the others. And all the little interactions between the commentators would no doubt be cut differently when, you know, this commentator is, is front and center, that commentator is front and center. I thought it was just a brilliant uh, efficiency play, if nothing else, to just make the same show six times in real time in front of you and make you part of it. I thought that was interesting, but it does, it does say like, it's not just that it's just, Oh, it's bad or whatever. It's that, there are differences in what's expected or what entertainment means. You know, the commentators on Ultimate Beastmaster are different sorts of commentators for the different countries. And uh, and I'm sure they have different styles. And I'm sure if you watch the show in all of the different languages, it would be a different show. And it's interesting that we see a lot of British shows that come to the United States and they inevitably get changed in ways that piss people off, uh, even if they eventually come around on them. Mm. Um, but it's interesting to think that yeah, not only is it sort of it's on one hand, it's sort of flattening things out, but on the other hand, it's also giving you access that you didn't have before to see things the way other people are seeing them, which you wouldn't have seen, I suppose, which is interesting. Mm. Um, but but also like, you know, you're gonna see a lot of things that are out of context. I did I, look up. Sorry, go ahead. I saw, you know, I, I went to a, like a talk in in. 
uh, in college, actually. Remember in college, there were just talks around and you could like go <laughs> to them. It was like a, it was like an in-person version of YouTube. You know, where you can yes. just watch someone talking at you about yes. a topic. Or I, watch someone play video games for 10 hours. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And I, well, we did plenty of that. I, it wasn't publicized though. That wasn't, um, but the, uh, I went to a talk from a, a guy very high up in global communications at Nestle and talked about advertising Nestle, Nestle, uh, products globally. Um, and, uh, uh, for example, and I learned a lot of interesting things. Like apparently, uh, Kit Kats, um, like take a break or have a break or something like, like taking a break from work is, uh, a common element of how Kit Kats are marketed globally, even in languages where, a, a you know, a break isn't a pun, uh, on, you know, uh, breaking off a, a piece of that Kit Kat bar and, uh, and taking a, taking a break from work. But so he showed us a, a, a German commercial. And, uh, the German the, has no word for taking a break, right? <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> um, no more, no more work and sitting. Yeah. You eaten, use the word callous, calisthenics is the closest translation. <laughs> eating, eating a Kit Kat. Um, and, uh, so it was a, uh, you know, it was a, a homemaker cleaning her house, uh, at home. Um, with a young baby and she needed a break. She was tired. And so she needed a break and sat down and had a Kit Kat. And, uh, in order to keep the cleaning going, she like strapped a dust mop to the baby so that the, the crawling baby was dusting the floor as it crawled back and forth across the, uh, across the, uh, the floor. And, um, so we, we watched this in a compilation of, of, you know, global, global ads for Nestle brands. And, and, uh, this particular executive's commentary on this was, yeah, this ad has a very German sense of humor. I'm not sure I would put this on television, uh, in any other, in any other national market. So it, it, it is, it, it is interesting, Pete. I think like the, to, to see it as a, to see it kind of unmediated, to see it as other people see it and to kind of, to, to kind of experience that, um, you know, that, that like cultural, that cultural hit. It's almost like eating the food from a different culture, isn't it? Yeah, like our favorite TV show, Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy, right? Which uh, I hear the third season is going to come out at some point, which I'm very much looking forward to. Finish the second season, which ends in London, by the way, and talks about Italian cooking in London and how good it is, which I wouldn't have guessed from the terrible pizzas they made last week on Great British Bake Off. (laughs) But I do want to say, as someone who's watched, let's conservatively say, 400 hours of cooking and food-related television since COVID happened due to having babies and and, uh, also Guy Fieri having an empire. Uh, um, (laughs) I have watched – I probably watched 25 seasons of Guy's Grocery Games since since March of 2020 because we went back and started watching it from the beginning while we were watching the new episodes. Um, it's, I'm not, I'm not comfortable saying it's still the best show on television because I've watched so much of it, but it does, it does do what it does. But here's the, the point is that I think it's an essential activity. And I want to talk about the third round of this show, the round where they were supposed to make a tres leches cake, because this I think was the most, the most interesting. There actually was a fair amount of drama. I wept. Did you, did you weep matter Mark? In the third round of Great British Bake Off? I actually didn't get to finish this part of the episode. You can kind of just oh, like, you didn't? Synopsis. No. 
Oh, well, man. We're, we're about to we're about to spoil it for you. But the, yeah, yeah the, there I yes, I get I get oddly affected by uh, episodes of the Great British Bake Off. I like how friendly the contestants are and how supportive they are of one another. Yeah. It seems it seems like, a, you know, I don't know, like a like a message in a bottle from another world, another society entirely. Sometimes I, I have also really taken to heart something that Jordan has said about the show, which is that when the old people lose, they shouldn't have to leave because huh. there's just this, because there's always old people and they never win. Um, although I guess I think they've probably won a couple times, but, but like, and they leave because they're just not as good at baking. And you could tell the time pressure kind of gets to them and the intensity of it. And, and there's just, it's just this deep sadness and finality when the sort of old, nice old lady who clearly is not going to be able to do this finally leaves. So this episode actually had a wonderful moment, which was that uh, they were assigned to make a tres leches cake, which is what is it? You know what a tres leches cake, Matt, is, right? Because you know Mexican cuisine pretty well. It's uh, is it? It's condensed milk. I guess I know and, that. Uh, yeah, condensed milk and um, oh god, what are the other things? I think like double cream and then the other one. Yeah, and it's it's a soaked sponge cake, as they say. And of course, and you have to make this this soaked sponge cake. And these are the showstoppers, so you supposedly have time to practice them. You're supposed to have a whole week, right, to to practice these uh, recipes for your showstoppers. Okay, sorry. Uh, sweet condensed milk, evaporated milk, and right. uh, and then like double cream or whipping cream. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, and so like I believe that your you know COVID protocol is sometimes getting in the way of this. You're supposed to have a week between when you know what the showstopper is going to be at least a week. And then the show that you're recording at the end of the week where you have to make the showstopper, this is where you make the big ridiculous cake that's shaped like, you know, mannequin piece in Belgium with a little kid peeing licorice or something. It's, it's, you know, it's a ridiculous, Oh, this is a, this is a gingerbread house that's styled after the leaning tower of Pisa. Uh, I also made a gingerbread house styled after the leaning tower of Pisa, which one's better. (laughs) Let's taste them. That kind of thing. Uh, And, so in this case, I think that they're supposed to have about a week to figure out how to do this thing. And most of the time it's, do I have my flavors? Can I make the ridiculous construction that I'm supposed to make? It's supposed to be really tall or have like decorations and I'm supposed to be able to time it out because I have to make a lot of elements and I have a fixed amount of time. And in this particular instance, the number one challenge was that none of them had ever had a cake like this before. They didn't know what it tasted like. They didn't know how it was supposed to work and they never worked with it before. And so they all went into it thinking that it was a regular showstopper challenge and it wasn't. Um, and this is not a trap. I'm, I'm, I am over sensibilizing it. It was not this sensible. It was a botch, right? Like Paul Hollywood clearly thought make a tres leches cake. And, and again, that's, that's what Mexico means to you was the theme, which is nonsense, which is BS, right? <laughs> it's such garbage. Like, make it about Mexico. What does that even mean? You've made no effort in this entire show to – because here's the other thing. As much as we're talking about street tacos and stuff, food in Mexico, right, is and food culture in Mexico is not street tacos all the time. Like, it's a whole country full of people twice as big as the UK. As you've said, they have a whole bunch of different kinds of cuisine. I'm, like, fuming about this, right? Like, like they have fine bakeries that are just as fine as any other bakeries in the world. They just make Mexican things, right? Like, like it is not all like bright colors and everybody, you know, is uh, going to the Day of the Dead Festival every day. Right? It's not cocoa and it's not, you know, Cocoa Puffs, right? It's it's serious cooking business. And, uh, and I think the gist of it is that everybody doing the challenge was really focused on making their cake 
special, tall and ostentatious and themed and all this nonsense, maybe using flavor elements that didn't work. A lot of them made this is one of the biggest problems in terms of actually interpolating the cooking show. One of the major, major roles in, in uh, food television uh, of of the presenter, of, of the sort of protagonist of the show, is they need to relate to the audience how the things taste in a way that's relatable and identifiable to them. And I had no idea in this whether the spiced chocolates, like the chocolate and chili mixes that were in like half the cakes, were actually bad or whether Paul Hollywood just doesn't like it. Right. Like, cause it was like, oh, there's just there chili in this. Yes. Chocolate and chili is a standard mix. Right. Like it's, it's, this is, you can buy in the grocery store. It's not exotic. Right. Um, maybe for you, I guess. But the point of all of this is that all of the bakers were dunking their sponges in the milks, which they had to do. And then trying to stack up these fancy wedding cake style cakes. And they were all sagging and collapsing and leaning over. Right. Um, and they all looked pretty bad. Um, the dumbest cake was probably the, uh, loving union tiramisu cake, okay. right? Which was, which was like, uh, it celebrated what did she say? Like the, the, the union of Mexican and Italian baking styles. Oh, dear. <laughs> and it was like a tiramisu Mexican spiced uh, tiramisu cake with chili powder with macarons on it. So it was like triple what the F are you doing? Right. Cause it's got French cookies and tiramisu and espresso and uh, and hot sauce or something. And it was garbage. And the girl sent home, got sent home for doing it. And one of the old ladies and not the old lady that everybody's been paying attention to with the crazy pink hair, but Dawn, who is this like white haired, bespectacled old lady mm. who sometimes just seems so lost, did the thing that nobody else did, which is apparently somehow somewhere she found a recipe for a trisleches cake and learned how to actually make it like she actually and she showed up with this very simple, big, but simple and elegant with like rings of hard chocolate kind of around it, almost like uh, a diagram of the moon, right? It was sort of like, because the discs were so thin and they surrounded the cake, they almost seemed to orbit it. And it had this this nice piping and it was just this, this sort of big, you know, kind of imposing, but elegant, you know, heavy, but light, very sort of neoclassical kind of cake. And you saw Paul Hollywood take a slice out of it, and it looked absolutely delicious. And in that moment, it's like, wow, she actually spent her time figuring out how to make this kind of cake and not worrying about whether she was making the right pyramid from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or whatever it was that guy was doing with his, with his like, aren't Mayan and Aztec pyramids the same? No, they're not, right? Um, uh, like, Are they like, related? Also, Are they related? No, they're not. <laughs> also, you're, you, you don't know how to make a Tres Leches cake. Right? Like that's your bigger problem. But she made this like very beautiful and well-executed, elegant Tres Leches cake. And it was like so everybody had been failing in so many ways that there was like this beautiful moment where it was like she did it. She actually did it. She used her week to read Wikipedia or whatever, or like to find a cookbook or to practice this. And she figured out how to do it. Maybe somebody she knew knew how to do it. And and because of the nature of this show, she never really un- gets to explain, right? Like there's no like there. And also because of the nature of the show, I think there's this sort of ritual in the first two rounds of the show where if you do really, really well, Paul Hollywood gives you the handshake, which is like a big honor and doesn't happen a lot every season. Um, but then he never, I think, gives handshakes for showstoppers. He doesn't give handshakes in the third round, but you could feel the gravity of it. Like you could feel like this was handshake worthy and and he he should have done it. 
anyway. And instead he gives her like a little golf clap. He sort of pulls his hands in and gives her a little golf clap. Like I am confident she made a better Tres Leches cake than he's ever going to make in his entire life. And, and she's just some random old lady from like the Midlands or something. I don't know where she's from. Mm. Right. Like, um, but she tried and she got it. And, and that made me cry, you know, because she had this sort of anticipation looking at it. Like, is it good? Right. Not like, Oh, here's my, you know, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've watched so much junior bake off also recently that I'm like, Oh yeah. The, the cake of the dad eating ice cream was a child's cake. That wasn't in this episode, but it was stupid enough to be in this episode. Um, but yeah, it was just this very beautiful moment and she didn't win because Polly Hollywood is a cad and the judging is terrible. <laughs> no, because she didn't do that great in the first two rounds. But, uh, but it was, it was just this really powerful moment of like, Hey, you know what the show could have been? You could have learned how to make Mexican baked goods, which are delicious. That's what you could have done, right? The guy who made like the Cuban guava cake, which was like clearly not Mexican anyway, but whatever. Um, but yeah, it's like, and, and when you're talking about like cooking shows, you have, you can't eat the food that they're making. So you have to, con- you sort of have to consume it or appreciate it in some other way. And there's always somebody who's learning. I think that somebody should always be learning something, whether it's, you know, Julia Child talking directly to the camera and and you're relating to her and learning from her stuff that you didn't know before. Or it's, you know, Stanley Tucci walking around Italy and he's eating delicious food and talking to you about its history and its social significance. And you're learning something about that. Or it's one of my personal favorites, Luda Can't Cook, where Ludacris Ludacris is like, I want to make Indian food. And so he finds a bunch of Indian chefs willing to, like, teach him how to make Indian food. He's not a good cook. He doesn't do a good job (laughs) most of the time. But at the end, he does a sort of test cook for some judges and family members and people tell him whether he's good or not. And he and he learns the basics of different national cuisines that way. It's actually a really good show, and I recommend it. He does Haitian. He does uh, um, uh, Thai. Does he do Thai food? It's it's, it's very good. It, I've watched it a while ago. But it's like you're watching Ludacris learn, right? Like you, Ludacris is paradoxically your surrogate, despite living a very different life from you. Um, and yeah, the you're Zoomer the learn. Zoomer version of that is is Selena and Chef. Where right. yes. Selena Gomez cooks, it's it's a COVID show where she is she you know gets instructed over Zoom or at least during COVID it was over Zoom by some uh, some chef you know expert in something. Like I actually watched her do an Italian one and learn how to make pasta from scratch, uh, and that you know it's a similar similar thing. But Pete, where I I I'm I'm kind of into where you're heading, so I want to nudge you along the road here. Okay. Sorry, yes. I sorry, I got very passionate about that the about old lady Luda, who actually yeah. made a nice cake and about Ludacris. What Luda? Uh, <laughs> we're in that red cake district, uh, red velvet. Um, so, <laughs> so I kind of mapped it out right in my and wrote it down and, and thought about it. And in terms of who, where is the information asymmetry in these shows? Certainly, there's the breaking the fourth wall and telling the audience directly, or having some sort of audience surrogate. There's some shows that have an apprentice who's learning from an expert cook. There's often some sort of authority, like you talked about uh, an outside uh, expert who comes in or an outside judge who comes in and is like, here's how you make Mexican food. And so there might be an apprentice, an expert, and an authority, right? There might even be a level above that, some sort of interlocutor or some sort of oversight or something. But there's these different layers where you can locate the act of learning about the food in any of these layers, and this will shape uh, I think a lot of the flow of the show. So like Guy Fieri goes to a diner and the diner person, Guy Fieri is sort of an authority, but he's also learning from the chef who is the expert. So it's the authority learning from the expert 
is is why one of the reasons why diners drive-ins and dives is such a show of humility because he's in this position of being the sort of most knowledge like, most conceivably knowledgeable person about gravy fries and you know here he is learning from some random person that he's just met you know who's operating some small place in some small town right and kind of putting them over and giving them the credit um and bake-off here's the thing with bake-off uh, and I would say this about Iron Chef, too. There's certain shows where where part of the drama is you don't know who's learning and you don't know who already knows. Mm. And Bake Off is big in this where I, you don't know in a general generally in a season of Bake Off, with a few exceptions, whether the chefs who are supposed to be home cooks and not professionals, but I think are often ringers. Whether they actually know what they're doing. Right. Like, OK, you have to make this showstopper. Oh, yeah, I've made it a thousand times. I'm going to show you what it is right and, and so the audience learns from them or whether they're going to get their work judged harshly by paul hollywood or prue and they're going to learn from those experts oh these these are the apprentices are the bakers the experts are they the apprentices right uh, we don't really know and uh unless it's jurgen in which case he's always the expert um uh, he's actually always the authority right and and uh hashtag free jurgen hashtag jurgen was robbed hashtag matcha <laughs> is a real flavor and i don't know why paul hollywood hates matcha and doesn't think it's a real <laughs> but <laughs> Jurgen's Japanese cake was delicious uh, or looked delicious anyway. But the point is that there's this tension in Bake Off specifically where you don't really know what they already know. And this might be because you're American and watching it like I'm American and watching it. You're American and watching it. So when they say, you know, make us farts in Fortal or whatever it is like or like make a make a Black Forest ghetto. Right. Um, you should assume I assume that these people are much more familiar with that than I am both because they're bakers and because they're British, you know, and because they're off, I guess, because the British bake off. Um, but like in this case, they didn't know at all. Nobody knew. And there was no effort to teach. The asymmetry was like the entire show. And I suppose it was the audience knew more, the American audience in particular <laughs> yeah, knew right. more than the entire show, which is a weird cooking show to watch uh, where it's like, you guys don't know anything and okay. I'm watching you and I, and there's no dramatic action um, because none of you actually know how to do it. And us yelling at the television and somehow not able to teach them how to yeah, cook yeah, yeah, food. Exactly. Or, or pronounce the words properly either, which is the most I mean, inferior. I mean, that would be an interesting cooking show to make. I mean, that would be, again, that would be more the streaming model. Matt, you watch some of those streaming cooking shows, which is a different model of cooking show, presumably where you you cook online and what can your chat kind of give you feedback or you engage with the audience or I guess, I mean, do you mean like live streaming cooking shows? I'm not, I'm not available. I'm not a, I'm not a connoisseur of, of Twitch, uh, Twitch cooking content. Oh, I don't know. Uh, and I don't know if, I don't know if it exists, but I do find uh, like I, I learned to cook largely or I, I got my like, uh, start in it, I guess. I, I, I suppose I read books after that, but like I got my start in it from watching the Food Network in like, uh, 2002, 2003 with the old Stand and Stir shows where it was just like, you know, I don't know, Bobby Flay standing there right behind a kitchen island, um, like, uh, you know, chopping up onions or whatever. And that, that like learning certain things and like realizing the patterns that, you know, uh, that emerged over and over and over, which is that you heat up some oil and you, you, uh, you know, sweat some onions and garlic and you like toast spices or you like the, the different sort of things was like the beginning of, of, 
kind of my relationship, my relationship with cooking food. That's, that sort of thing is almost entirely gone now. It's, um, it, you know, I, I, I saw the beginning of the end, Pete. I think you know that I was a, a viewer of, uh, the next Food Network star, uh, for its first few seasons. And when it start, when, uh, Guy Fieri, um, won, you know, when they said, Hey, are we, are we ready for a more, like a, a more masculine, and kind of more in your face type of personality. Uh, I think we are. And the rest was, the rest was history. Um, you know, and it began the, the beginning of the end for that, or I guess it, it accelerated the decline or it was a, uh, it was a, you know, signal moment in the decline of that stand and stir style of, of food network show. So now like I get most of my stand and stir content on YouTube. Um, and actually one of the great things about YouTube is that people from all over the world can do it. So you, you know, if you want to learn Mexican cooking, you don't have to, to do it from Paul Hollywood. There are great, uh, you know, channels of people in, uh, uh, of people in Mexico making Mexican food or as they call it there, food. And, uh, showing you, uh, showing you how to do it. I'll, I, you know what? I'll put my favorite one. Um, I'll put my favorite one, uh, in the, uh, uh, in the show notes and you can watch, um, the, it's, a uh, it's, a uh, one and they have, uh, she has like 4 million subscribers, uh, <laughs> has, uh, uh, a granddaughter filming her grandmother just cooking in her, her own kitchen and kind of explaining, uh, explaining how to make things. And it is, um, uh, pretty, pretty wonderful. It gets all that. It gets all that old sort of, uh, uh, being taken care of vibes that, you know, the old, like, uh, cooking and decorating shows used to, uh, used to used to give you so yeah that's the pete that's the the content i like i don't know if i don't i've I've not seen it live i think it would be it'd be pretty interesting to do chef q a i don't know i wouldn't want to be trying to like tweet while while operating a chef's knife but uh you know i don't know maybe you have a, a social media team that's helping you out or something yeah i will say there's a lot of barefoot contessa and pioneer woman in my home which i think are sort of the style of show you're talking about though of course they're even they have more variety in terms of like, oh, I just go into the cheese shop, right? Um, I mean, barefoot, Mark, well, yeah. barefoot, barefoot Contessa has um, at least a like. There's a notional plot to each episode, yeah. which is yeah. that like, you know, I don't know, the barefoot count has invited his business associates over for the oh, yeah. uh, uh, for the thing, and we're going to make a special summer picnic using. The last of our September tomatoes. And yeah, um, sorry, I'm trying to trying to do her like really, really kind of like soothing. Oh, uh, I'm here AS- for it. ASMR. I'm here for Matt, Matt Rather's one man show of the Barefoot Contessa. <laughs> Shod. It's called Shod, the Barefoot Contessa story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if if you want that style of show, the Barefoot Contessa style show, but with English eccentrics, I uh, I commend to you uh, the television show Two Fat Ladies, um, okay. where uh, where two friends uh, they are their names. Let's see, Wikipedia: uh, Clarissa Dixon Wright and Jennifer Patterson um, ride a motorcycle and sidecar around the English countryside and go to different, like, you know, manor house kitchens or whatever. And, uh, like cook in the thing. And it's like, all right, now to start the treacle tart, you're going to need 17 gallons of treacle. <laughs> it's just, 
truly, truly wonderful. Um, yeah, uh, but uh, barefoot, barefoot Contessa going on in your home, Pete. Yeah, yeah, my my wife likes it. And I, I most of the shows that are like that that uh, are the successors to like the Yan Can Cooks and the Frugal Gourmets and whatnot are uh, are yeah have that conceit of the episode is for a particular reason. As I think through it, Farmhouse Rules is one of my favorites. I mean, point uh, of point of order, Pete. I believe that the plurals are Yan's Can Cook and uh, Frugal's Gourmet. <laughs> I met Yan Can Cook one time at a Wegman's a couple of years ago. Uh, before COVID, he was it was interesting. He was cook, doing a cooking uh, exhibit there. He got a lot of energy. He ain't stopping. He ain't quitting. Yan can cook and he will cook. Mark, do you like any particular food or cooking shows? Matt and I have talked a lot about them, but I'm curious if there you have any favorites. No, I I, I don't. Is the things which is why I haven't been quite for this part of it. I just honestly, I just I tuned into uh, this this uh, edition of Great British Baking Show not because I watch it regularly, but because uh, um, the subject matter. Um, so this is the only uh, was so you've was ever so watched. compelling. I, I've seen bits, okay. <laughs> I've seen bits and pieces of them to, to get the, a, a bit of the gist. Um, but the notion of making fun of British people um, cooking Mexican food poorly um, was just too great of a thing to pass up. So, like, what did you think of the Guy Fieri of mince pies, Paul Hollywood? Um, I mean, I was just it's it's very much um, uh, prejudiced by you know the, your, <laughs> all of your negative com- commentary I on him. Good, I had that. I had being to rude. Because he did this one poorly. He's not always this bad. <laughs> Ragging on him is kind of a sport, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I mean, everyone needs a villain, right? He is a heel. That is, that is yeah. a thing. I think, I mean, would you agree with that, Matt, that Paul Hollywood is something of a heel? 100%. Percent. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I mean, though he's not, I you know, your grasp of wrestling is a lot more nuanced than mine, Pete. And, <laughs> and uh, it, he's not like constantly stomping around. He's a very good looking heel, right? And he's very, he's yeah. very charismatic. And he's like, you know, he's like withholding dad. Like the thing is that like everyone, everyone wants his, everyone wants his, approval which he will you know withhold capriciously um at you know for for whatever reason for whatever you know whatever b is in his bonnet on a particular uh on a in a particular episode so that's uh you know and he he makes a lot of he makes a lot of intensity so the the relationship between him and kind of being a villain is not um is not uh clear-cut or straightforward it's just he does um you know, he, he, yeah, he, he does like provide kind of a, a sometime antagonist, you know, for yeah. the, an obstacle, you know, for the, for the, uh, contestants. I, I will add, by the way, like his last name is just straight up jarring, right? <laughs> I mean, on one hand, I guess it is like a little bit fitting, you know, cause like, you know, I guess he's the star of this and, um, his hair is done. <laughs> it's not, not done. Um, and yet I'm told that Hollywood is a place in California. Um, and yet, uh, which is, which as we've talked, discussed before is very close to Mexico and apparently doesn't know much about Mexican food. <laughs> what if I, told confounding, you that, what thing. if I told you that Holly is a bush? What? <laughs> Hollywood is a tree <laughs> that's in England <laughs> and that's the one he's named after. Right. Is that, is that the thing? Is I, that, think, that, I that, think that makes a lot of sense. I think yeah. that is true. And the, the, you know, Hollywood land, the, the, which was the original name of the housing development, uh, you know, that is now identified by, um, metonymy, uh, I guess for the, uh, you know, for the entertainment industry, the American entertainment industry was named for that, that particular, uh, that particular tree as well. I think the other thing about Paul Hollywood is of course, 
Great British Bake Off made the jump from being a public television show to being a privatized television show. And when it was privatized, it lost a lot of people uh, who refused to go with it into private broadcasting. And then also it had this other host, this other judge, Mary Berry, who is kind of a grand, it seemed to come off as something of, although there, of course, the word means something much different, a grand dame of kind of hospitality and bakery stuff. Like somebody who seemed to really approach baking with a great deal of experience, knowledge, and uh, and and just gravitas in her presence, right? And so Paul was, I felt, the junior judge to Mary Berry, mm. who brought the sort of like uh, like he is a bread salesman, right? He like has a chain of bread making places, something along those lines, yeah, right? I think so. He's like he's like a bakery businessman. But Mary Berry, uh, these are home cooks, and Mary Berry was a sort of queen of of kind of home cookery. Uh, and uh, and of kind of of hospitality and had this aura about her. And so Paul went from being sort of the junior judge who did something as crass as cook for money, right? Hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and became the senior judge uh, when she left and Prue came in. Now, Prue's older than he is, um, but, but I don't think of Prue as somebody who has like a ton of seniority and gravitas in her carriage. She's much, she's light and she's easygoing and she's, she's the good cop and he's the bad cop. Um, but in all the while, I've never really watched Paul Hollywood cook anything, like actually cook anything on the show. I don't think he ever like you see the things that they make. I think are they supposed to have made the examples of the food that comes out when they talk about it? I don't As, know. Like, we're 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 yeah. it's probably a deeper conversation we yeah. can get into here at the end of the at the end of the world. But um, the uh, yeah, it is the relationship. They're very coy about the relationship between the contestants they're like homespun knowledge and the preparation or research that they yeah. do or what they're what they're given to do uh to do particular particular things yeah. we may have to leave the conversation okay. uh they're abandoned like a like a souffle i, I don't know what you abandoned abandoned <laughs> like a, a sagging trace leches cake that you tried to pile up like a like a wedding cake uh without realizing that soaking the cake in that much liquid means it's not it is no longer a fit structural uh structural building material so uh you know we 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 collapse in on ourselves uh until next week so thanks for listening thanks very much to pete and to mark for podcasting uh with me um and uh we'll be back next week till then you can visit us on the web at overthinking it.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve Broadchurch just hits real different when you realize it's about crumpets.